Jack. We knew it was going to happen. <laughs> I, I think it's kind of a bonus of talking about uh, a Ryan Johnson film. It's like, ooh, that, that lends itself to like a Star Wars tangent that we can get into. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. Uh, as you know, this show is all about leveling the playing field between uh, fans and critics and uh, trying to give everyone a voice, really democratizing the film criticism world. There's been such a divide between uh, film critics and between fans, and we've seen such kind of vitriol on both sides. And uh, that's why on the Crooked Table podcast, we're really about bringing in a fresh voice every episode and letting them talk about a movie that they really love. So this week, I'm joined by Adam Barnard of Screen Fever uh, YouTube channel and the Home Experience podcast. Adam, it's uh, good to have you back on the Crooked Table podcast in this uh, sort of, I guess, new uh, new version of it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I think we both are are very privy to the whole blockbuster world and just the culture but uh, behind how these movies are made. So while last time I was here to discuss Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, it, it'll be cool to dive into another kind of sci-fi epic, even though this one's based off an original property. Um, so I'm seeing kind of a trend, especially with like the filmmakers behind these movies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because you and I uh, have a very different uh, take on this director's uh, next project, which I'm sure we'll touch on. Uh, so yeah. just, you know, to get things started, you know, tell, the, tell the listeners a little bit about uh, who you are, how, how we know each other, and what, what you're all about, and, uh, you know, just do your uh, sales pitch for all, everything that you have going on. Yeah, so um, we know each other through a mutual friend named Michael Hinman, who uh, was the editor at, at Airlock Alpha, which is kind of a now defunct sci-fi news site. But uh, for a while there in the 2000s, it was a massive uh, spoiler site. It had a lot of uh, inside sources and was, was just very big in the whole uh, movie, TV, sci-fi blogging before that actually became so widespread, like what we have now with clickbait. And and, and oh, Michael yeah. has always had a lot of integrity with what he did. And, and I met him at a Stargate convention as well, and I've, I'm also intimately involved in Stargate fandom. I'm, a, I'm an editor at GateWorld.net, and I contribute to the actual uh, Stargate platform that MGM runs. So like, I'm also very networked in sci-fi fandom, and I actually first heard about you because Michael sent me a script um, for like a, a, a web series that he wrote and oh, you yeah. were the a co-writer on that. So that's where I saw your name and I guess I must have just added you on Facebook and and at some point we started talking and we found out we both, you know, have this this passion for for film criticism and kind of having these these real substantive discussions about um the actual creative process and state of the industry, um, which is also what I do on Screen Fever, which is a channel that I run with actually my friend from film school, who's who's kind of a, starting to become a working director now, which is really cool to see. And he PAs a lot. Um, he's, he's on set a lot. Uh, but this is kind of like our little side project because he's active in, in the industry. But I think having him as a as a podcaster and ha having him, you know, co-host these discussions about the film industry and make these video essays is just really cool to have um, his perspective because he's still in the film industry while I've kind of moved to more, you know, media and and short form content. Um, so that's our Screen Fever channel, uh, and I'm also like I said, I'm an editor at GateWorld, and I just try to like. 
I found a little nice niche for myself in in the um, in the kind of sci-fi film community. Yeah, well, I mean, that's definitely you know kind of the the place to be as far as cinema right now. Everything, look at the box office. Everything is sci-fi or comic book or you know it's come kind of genre fair. So that, that makes a lot of uh, it makes a lot of sense that you'd move in that direction. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how how we sort of because we've actually never met in person. It's just no. kind of been all online communication, like you said, back and forth. Uh, and it's interesting too because Michael is actually restarting his podcast Alpha Waves Radio that you can find yeah. online too. So um, yeah, Screen Fever definitely, uh, listeners check that out. Uh, I know you, you said you're mentioning you're focusing more on video essays and uh, you know that kind of content going forward. Yeah, I mean we started the channel in April, um, so it's still pretty new. Uh, I think Jax and I really wanted to do a podcast. We had talked about doing it since like freshman year of college. I mean, I know it's very much a, a thing of the decade to be like, dude, let's do a podcast. Um, but, but like we it's wanted a, it's to actually a try at this it. Point. Yeah, yeah, it is a cliche. So I, I don't feel like I'm bringing much individuality to my story <laughs> right now. But like, it, it's just something where I, I think it was, regardless of how many people listened or who listened, it was an idea of personal enrichment to learn like a new artistic outlet and a new way of sharing ideas because because filmmaking is all about theme and, and telling stories and expressing yourself and podcasting is just a much more direct way to do that and uh, you know you're not replicating a narrative you're actually in a very bare way discussing your thoughts or your experiences or, or the knowledge that you've acquired on a certain subject and like that to me was just really exciting as, as a means of like keeping my brain fresh especially because I work from home it's like I, a lot of the things I do I'm not talking to people so I just miss some of the social contact you know mm -hmm. I, I just think oh, yeah. it's like I think you enjoy it the most when you do it for yourself as well as others if that makes sense no absolutely I mean and I've been full-time for freelance for the last three years so I 100% know what you're what you're talking about I'm raising a little girl during the days and writing <laughs> articles and trying to record podcasts amidst all that and it's uh, it's a good way to sort of stay plugged into uh, you know to the, in the industry that we both love yeah well thank you so much for having me like, yeah, I of think course. I think it's cool that you're you're rebranding and, and taking like a different approach. Um, that's something I always encourage my friends to do. Really, whatever creative field they're in, and that's one thing that I had. You know, I was indoctrinated with in my early years at film school. It's like the only reason people get hired, whether it's directors or producers, or or anyone in the studio system or a cinematographer, it's because you have something that literally no one else has. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like when I see my my friends show me a song or or a podcast or a movie like I don't go easy anymore I just say like you have to like tell me what is this bringing or, or you know what I'm saying like like oh, what yeah. is I, and not not as like a to be harsh I just want them to find their the kind of like kernel of an idea you know and and sometimes it's hard but then I'm like look I I know you and I know you're able to do this it's like like what do you have in your experience because everyone has that one special skill and everyone has that one special approach to kind of like their art and and I think people settle too easily mm -hmm. so sometimes it it's good to struggle and kick around ideas and constantly rehit the drawing board because then when you come out with your brand, it's yours. You know, it's what you do. It's what people come to you when they want a certain kind of movie or a certain kind of podcast or a certain kind of YouTube channel. Um, and, and in the mix of, of just a massive strata of content that we have now, you really to stick out just to even cut through the white noise. You need that. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it feels hackneyed at this point to say, 
you know, the whole write what you know or create what you know, I guess, in this in this uh, context. But it, it, it's really true. I mean, we're so inundated with content now. It's just like it, it's it's hard to uh, to cut through the temptation of just, well, this is what everyone else is doing. So let me do my version of that. And it ends up kind of sounding cookie cutter like every other version that you've sort of absorbed yourself. And I think I was sort of falling into that uh, that yeah. trap a little bit, too, which is why I was like, all right, well, we're all talking about Marvel movies. So I guess I'm going to talk about the Marvel movie, just like every <laughs> other podcast that I listen to. Um, you know, it's sort of feel like part of that world. And it's interesting when you and I have these conversations because you come from, I mean, and we did this for a conversation on, on your Screen Fever channel about the state of the fandom, is that you're coming from a, a little more of a creator standpoint and I'm coming from a little more of like the journalist standpoint. And we kind of have kind of meet in the middle on, on those, uh, you know, from those two different, uh, vastly different perspectives on the entertainment industry and where it's going and what's, you know, um, what it all means, I guess. So, and, uh, you know, kind of touching back on the fact that we keep talking about sci-fi and, and that kind of thing, it makes sense that here we are again talking about another sci-fi uh, film here. It's actually, to, this week we're going to be talking about the 2012 sci-fi action thriller Looper from writer-director Ryan Johnson. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. In the future, time travel is outlawed used only in secret by the largest criminal organizations. When they need someone gone and they want to erase any trace of the target ever existing, they use specialized assassins like me, called loopers. You're a looper. You know what we do? And the only rule is never let your target escape, even if your target is you. So talking about this film, so this is basically a uh, time travel thriller where it's starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Joe, who is a looper, which basically means he's, uh, I guess, kind of a hitman in the present day, where the the future, as he, he likes to say a couple times in this movie, he does the whole monologue of, like, time travel hasn't been invented yet, but in the future, it's illegal, and, and uh, really lays it on thick, the premise of this movie, from the very beginning. But in the future, yeah. the criminal uh, element sends, uh, sends people back in time so that he can kill them and he disposes of the bodies, and there's no, like, you know, uh, there's no... Trail body back. tracking. Yeah, yeah, there's no, yeah. yeah there's the future no, right, gets exactly. easier Thank to you. track. Um, maybe, maybe you're tagging. better qualified to explain what the movie is about. Yeah, I've watched it so many fucking times. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I watched a lot when it came out, and just just because um, I actually had a, a personal kind of connection to the movie. Can I go into this at the moment, or do you want to? Well, let's, hit let's, the just, plot let's just yeah, let's just hit the broad strokes of the plot first. For sure. So, yeah, yeah. With it, it's funny because like I can compare the intro of this movie to another film I just reviewed on the Screen Fever podcast, which is Ready Player One. Which I also like a lot because it just it it's such complex worlds that even with these filmmakers like Ryan Johnson or Spielberg, sometimes for the sake of just telling ninety percent of their story with clarity, they have to have that you know voiceover narrating some kind of action that just tells you everything you need to know about uh, the the idiosyncrasies and the dynamics of these really complex futuristic worlds, you know, um, and, and so like I know people usually like to knock films down a peg for doing this. Like I think the first, uh, the first 10 minutes of loop are absolutely fantastic. I mean, I just think they're the perfect iteration of the kind of voiceover sci-fi introduction, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically Joe encounters 
to get back to that part of it. So Joe Encounter, basically, this is his job for years, it sounds like at this point. He's earning all his silver bars. And uh, then he encounters uh, himself sent back through time and has to kind of wrestle with the decision of uh, closing his own loop, as the film calls it, and sort of the journey that that sets him on. So we should also say, since this is a six-year-old movie and this podcast is not spoiler sensitive we're gonna when we launch into our, yeah exactly when we launch into our, the review section it is it, nothing is we're not holding anything back we're gonna go into the ending and everything all the big plot twists that kind of thing um so that's just kind of broad strokes it, 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 joe's journey leads him to this farm where emily blunt and her son show up and and uh just kind of a big shift halfway through the film which we'll get into so so yeah getting moving into why did you you know, the purpose of the Crooked Table podcast is to let guests choose their own films, what they wanted to discuss. And you and I went back and forth for a little while about what you wanted to talk about. So why did you right. land on Looper and what was kind of your personal connection with it? I landed on Looper for, for two reasons that I felt would be interesting. I mean, I mean, one, I have a personal connection to this movie and I think it's a masterpiece. And I want to really dive into the creative merits of this particular standalone original sci-fi story, which honestly we don't see much of anymore, at least at this level, you know, as a mid-budget feature film. And the second reason I chose Looper is because I really did not like The Last Jedi. And I thought that'd be, you know, I thought that'd be interesting because like most people see, or a lot of people see Last Jedi as this near perfect film and I can't stand it. And I over here, you know, see Ryan Johnson direct Looper, which I think is this pitch perfect um, you know, 10 out of 10 movie, uh, which, which is interesting because I thought the tone of Last Jedi was all over the place. And, you know, given our trend of, of kind of discussing the careers of these young filmmakers um, who, you know, in another life are, are just, you know, our peers or not really that much older than us in terms of like could have been in college classes with them for mm -hmm. all we know. I think that's interesting to kind of track like our generation's artists, you know what I'm saying? Instead of like discussing a Scorsese film or whatever, because that's just so far removed from, from my own personal experiences or or tastes um so yeah i think it'll be a good discussion yeah and uh you know as i was as you mentioned and i was alluding to earlier i i love the last jedi and i'm actually a, kind of a big fan of ryan johnson's films in general uh so it's interesting that he's you know this film was uh i think a decent sized hit i don't know if it made like a lot of money it's I should probably look that up on. Marvel I think it was 170, actually. 170 off of a 30 million dollar budget. Okay, so 170 worldwide. Ratio wise, yeah, ratio wise, that's like six to almost six to one. It's really good. Yeah, um, so it made like sixty, made about sixty six domestically, a thirty production budget. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely a solid hit for uh, yeah. Ryan Johnson. So it's interesting that he went from that from this film to the Last Jedi and how he's become sort of a uh, a very divisive figure. Uh, since this film was, I guess, really his kind of entrance into science fiction, because he'd done two sort of neo-noir kind of crime capers. And this film is kind of a, basically a combination of the neo-noir crime caper and like a sci-fi thriller. Right. Uh, kind of the, I guess, the, the bridge between, you know, Brick and the Brothers Bloom and The Last Jedi in that way. Right. Yeah. And like just another disclaimer here, another reason, like a sub reason why I chose this movie is I'm kind of low key sick of the vilification of Ryan Johnson. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, to me, he made a bad movie, you know, and he's also made three fantastic ones and done TV shows. It's like, r get over it. Really? 
Like, even if it is, I know you don't think it's a bad movie, but even if it is just a really crappy, you know, two out of 10 movie, it's like, so what? That doesn't nullify his, you know, past, present, and future artistic um, qualifications or contributions. I just think it's really juvenile. So, part of the reason that, you know, even as somebody who might be classified with the hater group of Last Jedi. I want to come back and say, no, this guy is really talented. Let's look at something he did that, that personally resonated with me and, and I thought was, you know, one of the best pop- possible iterations of itself. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. For me, this film, I saw this in theaters uh, when it came out and I was a big fan of it. I thought it was really, uh, really different than anything I was expecting. And, you know, the film has a, a ton of surprises uh, going for it. And uh, I think uh, it was a really interesting ride, and it was one that I actually picked up. I actually have had it on, on DVD. I got it at like a Black Friday sale years ago, and I had actually hadn't opened it until we were talking about doing this episode. I was like, I should probably go back and rewatch that because I haven't seen it in six years. So um, it's only your only your second this time. This is only my second time it. watching it. Yeah. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that that uh, that gives us an interesting uh, you know counterpoint as far well, as like- uh, our. Our appreciations of this film, I think. I, I I still liked it. I think you you said it sounds like you hold it in much higher esteem than I do. But I I mean I still yeah. it's a solid you know four out of five or whatever uh, okay. for for me. So we're not so like too what's far your behind. what's your knee jerk reaction having seen it again with fresh eyes for the first time in like half a decade? I guess I, I think I forgot how how weird it is. I guess I forgot <laughs> like how. But one of the things like I remembered and I remembered like the 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 beginning. I remembered the. Uh, this sort of transition sequence there between uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis. Um, I remembered the ending. Actually, one of the ones that stuck in my head the most was uh, sort of future Seth and his like falling apart because uh, as they're torturing, uh, you know, Paul Dano's character. Right. That yeah, whole thing, yeah. like that was burned into my memory from six years ago. Being like, oh man, that's the guy's like body parts are like disappearing because he's you know, being kind of yeah. cut apart and stuff. So that Such a really clever stood. scene. Yeah, uh, it's kind of very horrific. I feel like it's one of the most, like, uh, Im- impressive as far as you know. You, you, it's hard to forget that uh, that yeah. moment when you're watching it, and he's like trying to uh, hit the the brake on the car, and his like foot disappears. That, that was it's crazy. It's kind of it's kind of like a deeply psychological, um, psychologically horrific concept that mm-hmm. you're being tortured by someone mutilating your younger self and across like a 30 year time period, you're feeling the effects in real time. Like you're completely powerless to prevent your own dismembering. Like that's, that's terrifying shit, man. It is like, that's, it's not even that graphic of a scene. It's just the concept is so terrifying that like it, it sticks with you. And this film does, you know, this film does a lot of messing with that, whether it's the, uh, the carving on the arm of a messages between Joe and right. old Joe. And uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like <laughs> Bill and Ted where they're like, Oh, we need to go and put this, this uh, item over here so we can go get it later. Okay. I'll remember. And then there it is, you know, that kind of thing, like playing with the dynamic of time travel. Um, yeah. It's almost strangely comedic. Yeah. Like, like it, it's not played for comedy in the movie, but when you think about it, it's like these guys are, are carving out, words in their in their arm with like a knife to communicate communicate with each other um and like there's a great scene in the diner where where young joe carves out beatrix on his arm who's one of the waiters um and so old joe gets the reference and he comes and meets him at the diner and he's like and bruce willis old joe says to young joe he's like there's a girl that works here on the weekends her name is jen it's only three letters 
<laughs> yeah, it was just like it's this low key, funny, funny dark comedy that kind of is is so uh, sp- uh, tastefully sprinkled into the story to kind of recognize the, the the inherent ridiculousness of some of these plot threads and some of these these world building dynamics. So, what do you think of the uh, the kind of the vision of the future that this film, and then and then we'll get more into the time travel part of it. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's where the film has flaws, in my opinion. Okay. I I don't know if it was an issue, minor flaws, very minor flaws, but I don't know if it was an issue of budget because the movie thirty million dollars is just a lot of money, but in in blockbuster filmmaking, it's it's like pennies well how much of that went to bruce willis i mean yeah and that's the oh my god that's the other thing yeah it's like may as well lop off like a third of the budget right there plus back end um the 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 future is almost indistinguishable from some places in the present and like just from a simple production design standpoint you know we're we're 30 something years in the future and we still have like a 2002 ford ford explorer which runs fine you know there's Mm -hmm. no i mean they didn't even dress the cars to be anything different Uh, it, it just it Everything about you know the loopers and the technology they use, like the blunderbuss and, and and kind of like maybe like the social hierarchy or the the greater geopolitical dynamics of like you know wealth disparity and dystopia, like all of that works you know fine, I guess. Like adding these little futuristic trinkets, like the design is cool. It's just for being such a logical movie, the production design of the future is so illogical that it hits an uncanny valley that just like kind of nags at me as I watch it. But again, I can overlook it because of the immense uh, quality and fortitude of all the other elements, specifically the characters and the themes, which just anchor the entire film. Right. Yeah. No. They, don't they have like uh, some kind of a sort of a speeder bike kind of deal going on in this movie too? Yeah. And then we have a Mazda Miata, which yeah. just looks like a 2008 <laughs> Mazda Miata or whatever. It's just like there's it, you gotta at least bridge the gap somewhere, you know? Like the speeder bikes are, are cool as shit, but it just doesn't make sense to appear next to these cars. Um, and it just it, it feels a bit lazy. Which Ed Vero's great. Like Ed Vero designed Jurassic World, who is the production designer on Looper, and and I I love that kind of interpretation of of you know, real life theme park meets old Jurassic Park. And right. like, it's a great designers designed some other fantastic movies. So I, I guess we can just chalk it up to, to budget or maybe just a little bit of sloppiness in the world building side. Well, but at the same time, there's also, you could go too far with it. Um, you know, you've watched sci-fi movies, um, from the, maybe the eighties, like Blade Runner. And that's supposed to be 2019. It does not look like Blade Runner. <laughs> and, and we're almost in 2019. Where is the giant? Where where is all the giant? Uh, you know, where are the the spacecrafts float floating above us and like all the neons. Right. You know what I mean? So I feel like I I understand. I agree with your point to a certain extent, but it's also like I feel I feel like if they had pushed it too far, then we would have been like, okay, how far in the future is this supposed to well, be? Well, yeah, like it's, like another film it doesn't go far enough, but it, yeah. So I mean, I sure, agree well, with that. Interesting counterpoint. You know, I, I I agree with you because like another film that came out almost at the same time as Looper, which I saw in theaters, was the remake of Total Recall, which oh, yeah. was just completely bloated. I mean, it, it was cool, but it was completely bloated with all this CGI that just um, was looks like. I mean, every shot looks like a painting, but it just doesn't serve the story or kind mm. of the action. So yeah, I mean, I mean, it it almost makes. Ryan Johnson's Looper look grounded compared to some other blockbusters that were coming out at the time. So like 
It's not not necessarily a bad thing. At least Ryan doesn't kind of rely so heavily on visual effects and mm-hmm. like you know we look at visual effects from 2012 now. It's like it looks outdated already. Oh, yeah, I mean, I can't sure. imagine what it's going to look like in 10 years from now. But but Looper, you go watch like 50 years from now, and it's going to look real. So like I, I appreciate again. Like I think a theme that I'm seeing come here is like the artistry of Looper. Uh, right. There's just so much to talk about and so much to appreciate, even if occasionally you're missing the mark conceptually. Right. I think if he'd had a little bit of a bigger budget, he might have, uh, you know, extrapolated on the the world building side of it a little bit. But yeah, I yeah, think there's also then, a danger there, like as you said, about going overboard with it, and then it completely overshadows the narrative that he's trying to tell. Certainly, but like let let's look at the Last Jedi. Like the stuff on Canto Bite, the casino planet, looks fantastic. I mean, that's what he can do with a big budget. You know, it looks like Monte Carlo in space with mm-hmm. like these giant horse races with alien horses. And like wh- while I have problems with that set piece, with you know, I don't think the characterization, the plot elements are as strong as Looper. It's very clear that he can craft entertaining and intriguing set pieces. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. he just. Oh, yeah. He has such a wealth of stylistic influence that just what he creates for most of his movies ends up being really unique. Yeah, I think that's true. What do you think about the fact the way that the uh, the way the time travel actually like the time machine in this thing is basically yeah. like a little I don't know a little box that you put yourself in. Like it looks like almost almost like uh, the it's Jeff like Goldblum, Jules Verne or like yeah. Jeff Goldblum thing from The Fly. It's like you go in this little pod and you close the door and then it lights up and you're you know, 30 years in the past. Uh, what do you think about the way that he sort of illustrated uh, the time travel part of it? And then we can get into like, I guess how uh, the mechanics of how that yeah. works. I, th- I think it's fine. It just looks like a steampunk fusion reactor. You right. know, that's like a little, maybe a little submarine vessel from like a Jules Verne type type, you know, uh, again, this is just talking about his influences. He probably likes some of that steampunk stuff. He said, let's make it look like a little mini submarine. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I appreciate the idea behind it. Um, and, and again, like I wasn't really thinking about, I didn't really care how the time machine worked. You know, this is the kind of movie that says you're either going to buy that he's stepping into a time machine or you're not, <laughs> well, you're not I mean, you know, for, for some people it matters. I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm not trying right, to belittle right. no, no, no. What, what you're saying. Just, just for me, like, you know, some people care about those little details. Other people are willing to just overlook that and go along with the ride and like you know i thought the time machine was was fine i think the bigger issue that a lot of people had and that i wrestled with and now i've landed on the side of liking it but at first i didn't is the whole dynamics of the time travel itself because mm-hmm. there's plenty of paradoxes and oh well and there's kind of contradictions right. about how any of this is even at all possible and the movie kind of straddles the line in terms of totally explaining it and not explaining it at all and if you're not on board with that, you're going to hate this movie. And and I have several friends who do because of that very reason. Well, I mean, cinematically, and I guess in any kind of story, there's really kind of two approaches to time travel. There is, you can go back and change things, which is seen more, the more popular because it's easier to... Uh, to understand, to conceive of. And then sure. there is the, like, um, I think... I think even the time machine kind of adheres to this. And there's a a great, uh, I don't know if, I think it's a Spanish film named Time Crimes, which I don't know if you've seen, but that basically the point of it is, and I think Primer is like this as well. I'm not sure. I haven't seen that one in a long time. Um, I think basically, you know, you can go back, you can't go back and change things because you would, it would have already been that way. It's like, you know, time is a straight line, not that you can go back and affect the past and I think this film wisely simplifies it by just going with the, 
you know, you can change the future by going back in the, you know, it, it makes it the, the, the time stream sort of ma- malleable. In sure. That and yeah, it's interesting too, because Ryan Johnson clearly doesn't want to get caught up in that debate of it all, which is why they have, he has the scene at the diner where Bruce Willis is like, literally, oh, don't ask me about time travel. Cause we're going to be making right. diagrams with straws. He's like, it doesn't matter. And he's like all pissed off. And basically Ryan Johnson, like looking at the camera, is like, did you guys get that? You know? Right. So I have a really interesting story about this, right? Uh-huh. Um, when I was at film school in 2012 with the USC summer program, Ryan Johnson visited our class before Looper came out and he brought the script for us to read. And I read the original Looper script. And at that diner scene, there's, there's a huge chunk of their interaction that is literally dedicated to drawing straws with making, you know, organizing salt and literally explaining how time travel works in looper and it even has in the script like like basic illustrations copied and pasted in of what the, what they're doing on the table with the straws and the salt oh, wow. and explaining this yeah i mean the scene goes i mean ryan johnson likes long scenes so this scene's like a whole right. page that isn't in the diner scene the one line that is is bruce willis saying i don't want to talk about time travel because we'll end up you know uh playing with straws and salt on the table all day the reason that was in there is because they shot a whole fucking page oh, wow. of them actually doing that and then they they i think they just lifted that out of the scene in post and then that line is left over, but somehow that line still works, even though, you know, the entire I- event, the way the scene plays out has been totally changed through that omission. And and second thing, part of that story is that um, we read the script before Ryan came and visited our class and he asked everyone, you know, what, what was your favorite part of the script? And I raised my hand. I'm like, I loved the scene where you explain the time travel. It was fantastic. It made so much sense. It adds such richness to everything that's happening. And I see his face start to like, you know, wait for me to finish talking. I'm like, shit, what did I say? He's like, he's like, yeah, that's all gone. Like we cut every explanation out. It's like, all right, what the fuck do I know? Like I'm this 17 year old idiot who's like telling him to put back all the, the time travel stuff. But again, like it works better without it because the more the movie tries to explain itself, the more I think its reasoning is going to implode. So right. we just have to take the time travel and the whole grandfather paradox thing for what it is and exactly. roll with the story. Yeah, and I think it's good that I mean it's it's uh, it reminds me of like an Austin Powers where he's like oh just forget about that kind of time travel thing and just enjoy yourself that kind of thing <laughs> literally uh, yeah it, it yeah. pretty much is that and I think in a way that's probably the smarter way to play it because going into a complex uh, explanation I think probably just would have alienated more of the audience than it would have won over in a way um, yeah so I don't probably hold that against more, the more movie more yeah I don't hold it against the movie I just think it's kind of an interesting way of dealing with it like oh because it is okay this is all fiction let's just roll with it. Um, it's interesting too, that that's really kind of the only extended interaction that the, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt character and Bruce Willis character really even have. Um, you oh know, yeah. Bruce Willis. I is, didn't notice that. He's top billed in this movie, but he doesn't show up for until like, in, I guess the very end of act one and then yeah. barely, barely has dialogue. I mean, he has a few, you know, that's his big dialogue scene in the movie. He's just kind of basically the Terminator, uh, for most of the film, hunting down all these small children. Uh, so it's interesting, the kind of dynamic of Joe as kind of a hero and a villain. Um, and, sure, And the yeah. way that, that, so what do you think about that fact and the way the way that, uh, you know, they, they barely, inter- barely interact throughout the course of the movie and the way that that, uh, you know, that, that I guess, dynamic has, uh, evolves over the course of the film between the two of them. 
I'm so glad you brought that up because the first act of the movie, the first 30 minutes of the movie is like its own mini movie. Mm-hmm, sure. Like it's, it's, it, uh, uh, you know, explains the world, introduces the character, gives that character challenges to overcome, you know, it, um, paints that character as a very lonely figure, a morally bankrupt figure who also, understands his own depravity and and is seeking to find connection it's not even cultivating plot elements it's cultivating more theme Mm -hmm. so when he meets sid and when he meets emily blunt's character when he he has you know his life changed we have so much context for what he's feeling um and, and yeah old joe showing up is literally the end of act one like it's the perfect plot point when you think about it it's like right. you know your 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 loop is closed and he escapes you know you you come face to face with your older self and you don't get you fail to pull the trigger and the the consequences of that and the ramifications of that are planted with with seth's character uh, um, with with the character of seth played by uh paul dano who lets his loop run and you see the absolute chaos which is where that scene comes where they torture his young self to kill his older self so like again it's just so economical for 30 minutes of storytelling to set up um you know closing your loop and and really just understanding joe um I, I, I know I'm rambling, but like I love the scene where he's with Piper Parabo's character, the the prostitute Susie. It's like such a I, when I'm young, I didn't really get it because when you're 17, you're like, oh look, she's naked, she's topless, and now it's like, God, that's such a gut punch in terms of like you know seeing how he betrayed his friend, and he's like that was mm-hmm. the only the only connection he had with any of his coworkers of you know his camaraderie of hitmen, and and it's just like he's literally trying to find love with a prostitute, and it's just like such a yeah you really kind of yeah it's kind of it's very he's very uh, sympathetic figure even though you know that he does terrible things and actually as you see in the film kind of does way more and that's it's interesting that the narrative structure here because it does spend basically a half hour explaining or oh, this is the world this is what loopers are blunderbuss and all the terminology and how the world functions and setting the stakes as you mentioned with paul dano's character but then when uh old joe sort of takes off he it, it kind of has like a little minority report moment where he's like i'm gonna yeah. solve this oh everybody yeah. runs that <laughs> That's kind of so thing true uh and then yeah. he falls off the fire escape and all of a sudden it resets to showing us old Joe's journey to getting to this point and how, Oh, he killed, he killed this guy and he killed himself or whatever. And then took off and, uh, you know, went traveling and how, how he, uh, you know, how he developed, uh, into, I guess, spent all the silver that he had and then got, you know, into more criminal, uh, activities. Like there's basically a hitman in Asia, it seems like, and fell in love and all of that stuff. Um, yeah. That that's what did you think about that choice to uh, to explain Joe's situation and then at that critical juncture be like oh we got to get you up to speed with old old Joe so you understand where he's coming from and just basically sure. he has because there's a whole sequence there where it's just seven years later ten years later tw- like it's it's <laughs> it's kind of uh, jarring in a in an intriguing way but it's it's just basically puts the current story on hold to it, delve into a totally different character in a way. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, the first time I saw um, Joe fall off the ladder and then have the the next few minutes play out, it confused the absolute hell out of Mm -hmm. me because I thought he had died. And that's part of the, that's still something I think might be a flaw. It's like the way um, 
his fall is covered, the way he falls off the a very high mm-hmm. ladder, and you know the slow motion fall, the fact that he lands on his back, it's like the, the dude's dead. Like he broke his back, so this is his next loop. Now you're thinking like, okay, you know what happened? Did did we start over again? Um, because because like again, we come back to that field where you see the zigzag cloud in the background. So it signifies we've been here before, and and it, it, I <laughs> completely you know like Jeff Daniels says, this time travel crap just fries your brain like an egg. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it wasn't very clear what happened. So I was so confused the first time I saw it. Um, but if you're asking about what I thought of that, how that whole sequence played out with Old Joe and how they go on the run, like. If I understood it, which I did obviously in subsequent viewings, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great way to complicate the plot and it, it keeps everything on the character. Because if this movie, you know, honestly, per our earlier point, if this movie had two hundred million dollars, there's there's an intimacy to all the action and the conflict and the killing and and uh, the betrayal, which makes it more rewatchable and gives it more uh, texture than just to shoot him up would. Um, and then that's part of the reason why I think this movie is good. Yeah, and I think that scene, I mean, it, you're saying how jarring it is. I think it's supposed to be. I think it, it you can spend the sure. whole first 30-something minutes or whatever uh, following uh, Joe's arc, you know, and, and sort of the, the I guess, uh, major inciting event there with uh, old Joe's sort of arrival. And I think that you're supposed to, you know, it, it takes you out of, uh, out of what you're what you would expect from a film like this and and throws off some you know throws in a non-linear loop to which is makes sense because yeah. the whole point of the movie is everything is is you know how the memory is changing as he's as uh certain events are taking place and and sort of the the i don't know i don't try to think the cyclical nature of of time and be like okay well this is what happens here but what if this had happened and i, I think it, it's uh, it really yeah. underscores the themes of the film by kind of the way that 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 sort of uh drastic cut from uh, the fall off the fire escape or whatever to sure uh, to old joe's side of things so we i have to get this out of the way also yeah what do you think i think another big criticism that a lot of people had of this film then and probably more so now what do you how do you feel about the uh joseph gordon levin Levitt makeup. Do you think that do you see it's distracting? It's do you fine. think it's necessary? I mean, couldn't they have made this movie without that? Because I think a lot of people are like, why are they just why did they make Joseph Gordon Levitt look, you know, more like Bruce Willis? I mean, what's the do you think right. that was yeah? So important? so I, I know some of the business aspects to it, so I don't know if that's a proper explanation or justification. Oh, I feel like I, I have mean, heard about Joseph, some of that actually. Now yeah, that yeah. Ryan Johnson had this looper as a idea as a short film from like the time he did brick with joseph gordon levitt and he had a working relationship with joseph gordon levitt so when he designed the character of of, of joe and, and looper it's like yeah yeah joseph gordon levitt has to play that character so he had been a, a joseph gordon levitt had been attached for a while when you make you know risky original mid-budget sci-fi movie ideas like this you need a real star to anchor it mm-hmm. you need someone like bruce willis um so at that point, when you cast Bruce Willis, it's like, do I drop my friend on his ass to find a lookalike for Bruce Willis or do we bridge the gap? And then the other problem is, well, Bruce Willis is a freaking dick to work with. I hope this doesn't lose me any jobs. So like, he's not going to want to sit in the makeup chair to look like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Right. So now Joseph Gordon-Levitt has to, has to look like um, 
Bruce Willis. I mean, yeah, no, so, no offense to Joseph you know. Gordon-Levitt, who's a, who's a great actor, and I think is really was really kind of on a hot streak around this time. This was like I think at the same year or the year before or whatever, with like Fifty Fifty was coming out, and he was in all kinds of stuff in the you know the early two thousand tens. But I mean, Bruce Willis for the, the average moviegoer, he's the one that puts the asses in seats, even though he's not the lead of this movie. I mean, he does get top billing right. for that reason. But did you do you think? I mean, couldn't they have just had Joseph Gordon-Levitt look like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and just you know, suspension of disbelief that he grows up to look like Bruce Willis? Sure. You know, I see your question now. I probably answered it the wrong way. I think you it looks I mean? fine. I think, the, I think the makeup looks fantastic. Like, I think the only reason it doesn't look right is because <laughs> we know what Joseph Gordon-Levitt is supposed yeah. to look like. And it's really jarring for us to see such a familiar face being almost look like they've done like visual augmentation to his face right. like you know like like uh tarkin in rogue one it's like it almost looks like peter cushing but something's off mm -hmm. that's kind of like this it almost looks like joseph gordon levitt but if you don't know what he looks like it's i don't think it'll bother you i think the makeup itself is is quite fantastic yeah, yeah. I could I could see that. So, I just it's just worth pointing out because if you because no, we do no, know what he looks like because if we do know what he looks like we come to it and I could see some people looking at Joseph Gordon Levitt be like why does he look like a Dick Tracy villain right now you know <laughs> that kind of thing I don't think it takes away from the movie I think it's just a right. kind of a curious thing I'm like but you know that young people play younger versions of another actor all the time I don't think Kate Winslet looks that much like Gloria Stewart but they made oh, it work yeah. it's like you know it's, it's it kind of like Mac Michael. Michael Fassbender looks nothing like Steve Jobs, yet yet I think the Danny Boyle movie is just absolutely fantastic. Oh, I love I love that movie. Uh, or Ian yeah. McKellen, really, if we're going to talk about Fassbender, he doesn't really look like, like Ian McKellen either. Oh right. And they yeah. were even in the same exactly. movie, you know, in Days of Future Past, going back and forth, like, oh, this is the same guy. Like they don't have the same voice. They don't look. I mean, you know. Right. Uh, so it's just it's an interest. It's kind of a curiosity because I feel like most movies would have just been like, oh, no, it's just he's JGL and he turns into Bruce Willis. Let it be. Um, and, I, and I think it's like it's about their chemistry, right. you know, it's about their dynamics and Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt obviously have chemistry and Joseph Gordon-Levitt did a great job picking up some mannerisms and vocal inflections that, you know, yeah, mirror totally. Bruce Willis. So that was, I mean, they get it. Then again, he wouldn't even need the makeup to do that. You know, it's just because he's a damn good actor. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about the two Joes. That's kind of like a, a bit philosophical. The older Joe... Um, is kind of on a bit of a crusade when he comes back in time. He basically has decided that, like, you know, uh, I need to go back and make sure that Joe meets this woman that I'll have a wonderful life with in the future, and and I have to stop the Rainmaker. It's like he has two purposes. One is to save the future from the supervillain, essentially. As cheesy as that sounds, there's sort someone of. who has a genetic mutation that basically gives them massive amounts of power and and they're killing everyone in the future they've killed all his friends so he has to basically go back and kill this little kid if he can find him um and then also make sure joe moves to china and meets this woman and he's going to clean him up for being a drug addict and like this time watching the movie you know with a more mature perspective i'm like Joe is such an asshole. Mm -hmm. Like I actually believe I personally agreed with young Joe where it's like, you're old, you've lived your life now buzz off. 
Like, you know, just because just yeah. you've come, you've already come back in time. You've changed everything. You know, he said, show me the picture of her so I know never to meet her. She, I know never to say hi to her. She won't get killed. You know, I actually thought young Joe was being reasonable and old Joe was being a stubborn old man who was letting his own ego destroy an entire timeline. And I hadn't really picked that up because, again, like, this movie is a lot of layers to it and is actually way more mature and, and heady than people give it credit for. So as I get older and, you know, pocket more life experiences, I view it in entirely different ways. And, and asking you as someone who's, who's, you know, I can't, I don't want to say this without saying like a jerk, but significantly older than me, right. a couple of years older than me. How, how can I say it? To <laughs> no, sound I'm, really I'm, I'm what, a, a, over, you know, you're in your over a decade. Yeah. I'm over a decade older yeah. than you. Yeah. You're about a decade. We'll just say you're a decade older. Yeah. You know, you're married. You have a kid. Like, right. what do you think about their dynamic? Who is right? Um, who, who's on an ego trip? You know, are both of them wrong? Like, what are your thoughts? Um, I mean, I think objectively, I think young Joe is right because, sure, old Joe's motivation is to to kill the rainmaker at this you know when he's still a child and change and save his wife, but ultimately that. It, he he's only doing that to to for for his very selfish reasons. Like he's not doing that. I have to sure. save the universe. Or like he's not. You know what I mean? It's not. There's no altruistic side to his mission. It's just he's upset because his wife got killed, and he wants to prevent that from ever happening. And I don't. I mean, I think I think your read is is correct. I think you're supposed to. Uh, I think you're supposed to kind of see it that way, especially with the way that the film ends that young Joe sort of basically, basically just makes that choice for him. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, I think it's a, it's a motivation that you can understand so that you empathize enough with old Joe's mission that you understand that he doesn't, he feels like he has like coming from a, a, a point of emotional desperation that he feels like he doesn't want to murder these children, but he feels like he has no choice and that he's lived a life of decades of, of despicable behavior. And as you were saying, young Joe is already kind of morally bankrupt. Old Joe goes to so much darker places and feels like he only have recently gotten his shit together because he fell in love with this woman that, you know, you see that she's like helping him through withdrawals from all the drugs that's in the system and kind of, um, rehabilitating him as a man basically and uh, at an old age yeah, too. it I, takes yeah, a while to find redemption. well that's like what 20 yeah. something years into the 30 year yeah. story he's it's already like, bald he's like yeah. i've only been nice for like the last five years you know but yeah you know i don't want all well, those old, decades old to be for none well, yeah, old Joe is acting emotionally. You know, right. he's, he's acting irrationally. He's not really thinking this through. And that's mostly because his wife was just shot before his eyes in terms of how he's lived things out. However, at the same time, like young Joe is, is kind of sleazy. You know, it's something where it's like he's so arrogant. He's just basically telling himself to, to go die. You know, it's like he's like, why don't you do what old men do and die? And he just he, he comes off as a you know, a bit of an unsavory character. So like the first time I watched it, I'm like, I hate both these characters. I don't hate both these characters, but I don't like their perspectives. You know what I'm saying? And then like with young Joe, it's like, it's really interesting to have a a sleazy protagonist put in a position or, or, you know, make a point that I'm even like, yeah, well, that's how things should go down. In a way it's funny because both of them have, both of them have a plan for their life from this point going forward. Like old Joe had, had you could finally gotten his act together. He'd fallen in love. They were happy. They were try, they were like trying to have a kid or whatever at that point. And then young Joe's like, I'm saving up my silver. 
I'm going to finish yeah. what I'm doing here. I'm going to go travel. I'm going to go to France, even though there's the running joke of everybody saying, go to China. He's like, <laughs> Jeff Daniels, like, I've been to the future. Go to China. Um, that kind of thing. But basically both of them are struggling to hold on to uh, to the plan that they have set for themselves and the direction that their life was going. And it's really they're just both trying to hold on to their status quo, which creates an interesting conflict because of the same person trying to both of them trying to keep their life uh you know moving in a certain direction at various points right absolutely a funny story about the china thing or the france china dynamic originally joe was going to go to france and everything that took place in china was going to take place in france um when they were uh when they were making when they were in pre-production um they couldn't they found out they couldn't budget for france so they'd have to double like new orleans for france and ryan johnson felt that like it was just gonna come off as a cheat you know it wouldn't authentically feel like they're in paris or they're Mm -hmm. in france um but the script had already been written where he's learning french so so again this is how like for in his movies ryan johnson when he encounters problems like when he shoots a scene where they explain time travel and it doesn't work he actually finds humor in or he finds a creative solution to right. cutting it out and in this you know in this iteration of looper he the the first half is the same where it's like i want to go to france i'm learning i, I want to go to france i'm learning french you know um but but uh business wise they got a huge deal from a production company in china and they're very limited with how many american movies they co-finance or even allow to be distributed right. in china so it's a, it's a at, at, around 2012 was a huge untapped market um, to, to, you know, to get a movie distributed or co-financed by a Chinese production company was like hitting the jackpot. So the, you know, the creative roadblock, uh, creative roadblock they ran into by not being able to shoot in Paris or, you know, double in New Orleans actually resulted in an opportunity in China and also a lot of humor where it's like, I'm from the future, go to China, which is kind of meta, you know, in terms of yeah. like all the industry and, and films, uh, film business that has been developing in the last few years in China. Um, so I liked how he kind of compromised by having both the French and the Chinese uh, dynamics in there. And, and also like the set pieces in China look fantastic. Um, I, I just love the flair it gives the movie and it gives a visual distinction and a kind of removal from the very grounded, you know, mid Midwestern American town uh, compared to Joe, older Joe's life in China. No, I I love the way that he, yeah, I think that I do, I agree with you. I think a lot of the, all those set pieces look really great and the cinematography in this film is amazing. Uh, Yeah. The the score by, I think it's Nathan Johnson, which I think is his brother. Isn't that Ryan Johnson's brother or cousin? Cousin. Okay. I knew it was related to him somehow. Um, (laughs) And I think, um, well, not because of the last name, but also because I'd heard that he was um, related to him. That he, Last Jedi was the first movie I think he didn't score of his. Um, right, yeah. So, yeah, no, I think that I, I love the way he does find those sort of playful solutions for uh, for issues like that, like kind of during the production and, and is able to kind of shift the narrative on a dime to for practicality's sake. Um, so yeah. I, I, and then he makes it look like it's been intentional the whole time. Ex- you know, it's exactly. like he, and so it's it's the work of a master to kind of like make all his mistakes look like intentional creative decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've sort of intentionally been um, kind of focusing on the first half of the film because I, sure, because yeah. it does take such a drastic shift halfway through. I mean, we were talking about how Act One is really setting the stage for things. Act Two is really like. Uh, the clash between young Joe and old Joe and sort of sorting out what they're going to be each doing for the rest of the film, where he gets the list of the, uh, you know, the, 
the three houses and and uh, young Joe sort of rips off part of it. Um, and then from that point on, I mean, we're following this uh, sort of, it is kind of a chase movie for that, like, I guess, second 30 minute chunk of the movie. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're we cut to, uh, to cut out to a field and it's Emily Blunt chopping wood and smoking an imaginary cigarette and just kind of, <laughs> you're like, wait, what the hell happened? It's like, it's, it really yeah. takes a huge shift halfway through. And they said that they uh, established a lot of uh, the groundwork for that earlier with uh, the Rainmaker and with uh, the fact that there are, are people that are telekinetic, basically they call them TK, uh, that I guess is mm-hmm. like 10% of the population or something. How did you feel about them sort of folding, I guess, uh, you know, telekinetic powers into this world? Did that feel like one one asks too much of a, of a film like this? And you're already being like, hey, time travel is also people can move stuff with their minds. I mean, I don't think so. I think it worked. It worked well. Um, I also think, given the dichotomy between the first half of the movie and the second half of the movie, um, how it you know makes an ostensibly rigid transition, but when you look at it uh, closer, it actually makes all the sense in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, with the stuff that Joe's personal journey and the Rainmaker and the mutation and the time travel and the kind of culture around this this. Uh, specific timeline you know that's kind of like a dystopian future i i think it's it, it threw a lot of people for a loop <laughs> no pun intended um b- because it was marketed as a very big dystopian gang thriller time travel movie and you weren't it wasn't didn't really make it clear that the entire second half of the movie would be taking place in some midwestern farm um right. so it's like you start to get into it it's like there's all these gangs gap men it's like this cool futuristic mob and then it's like meet emily blunt and her five-year-old and that's the rest of the movie um i didn't like it at first i actually kind of lost interest uh both when i read the script before the movie came out i was kind of like what did i miss why are we on a farm like why do i care Mm -hmm. and again i was younger i was more bullish i didn't really understand i didn't have the same kind of filter to pull out themes and, and through lines um so yeah when it first came out when i first read it it did not work for me and now I watched it with fresh eyes, I think for the first time in several years, as well as you. And I was just surprised at how much I liked it. Like, I was like, oh my God, everything I didn't like about that transition, I think is the strength of the movie. It's like how it develops the characters and, and takes the movie in an unexpected turn. It just, it keeps it so fresh and it's like, it, it, it you know, it differentiates, it separates itself from the pack of other kind of, you know, you know mid-budget thriller movies that just play out in an arbitrary fashion you know Mm -hmm. it really is special yeah because the first half of the movie it's introducing the world and then the story sort of expands out and then all of a sudden you know whereas traditional movies would get bigger and bigger and bigger and usually have a beam in the sky or or like cg army or something it's like halfway through this movie is like nope and like constricts itself down to really three people on a farm and it it becomes sort of a, a bottle episode of itself in a way. And I, I think that's an, a really interesting take. Cause I mean, uh, having yeah. only watched this for the second time, the first time I did remember being like, wait, what the hell is going on? Because yeah. it, <laughs> it, 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 it becomes a, a much, a much slower paced movie in a way. Uh, yeah. but no, I mean, it doesn't suffer for it. It's just, it's not what you're expecting. And you're all hyped up with the first half of the movie. And then, you know, it, it, I think it does, uh, really dial in on, um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the themes, and also driving driving a uh, pretty significant parallel between Joe and Sid, as far as like 
you know, the, the ending, which we'll get to in a little bit and sort of the, uh, the dark path. Cause at the end, when he's talking about the dark path, I could see the bad path. I could see it all laid out yeah. before him. It feels like he's talking about both himself and Sid in a way. I mean, I think he ends up really talking about more of himself in that moment, but, um, you know, it, it's, it really kind of hones in on what Joe ultimately will become. And, uh, at the same time, raising a bunch of other themes as far as, uh, you know, me watching this as a parent as the nature versus yeah. nurture thing is like, well, would this kid turn out to be this way if Emily Blunt is there to raise him? Which after that was her whole point throughout the movie. He has these flare ups yeah. where he just loses his temper and she just goes and hides uh, to, to protect herself so she doesn't get accidentally killed. In a killed. safe. Yeah, in a yeah, safe, in exactly. Like a t- two foot safe that's just that's such a funny concept it's very strange to watch it you literally have to lock yourself in like a bulletproof safe to I save mean, yourself from your child my kid has tantrums but i don't have to like run away just to, for my own like safety um, right it's such a it's such a weird dynamic you know? yeah so it raises a lot of those uh you know those questions about how you know how your upbringing affects uh what you ultimately become and um yeah. You know, the the sort of the crossroads that Joe is faced with uh, in the finale. And I, I want to just point out that I, I thought Pierce Gagnon, who has, hasn't really, I don't feel like he hasn't, the little boy, I feel like he hasn't really done as, has he done as, as prominent a role subsequently? I don't really think so. No, I mean, he was in, he was in Tomorrowland, which oh, was really right. bizarre. Was like, but it wasn't George Clooney, I think, in like the first yeah. like 15, 20 minutes or whatever. Yeah. It was bizarre it wasn't it was a totally different role um he's he delivers a powerhouse of a performance in this film i mean he hits like all the core emotional food groups with (laughs) just disturbing precision Mm -hmm. for someone who's like five years old like like regret you know anger uh empathy loneliness fear um trauma like it's just God, and it's it's. I just think when kids can deliver a performance that sophisticated, I almost want to like get inside their head and and find out how they've accumulated such wisdom or such sensitivity at such a young age with so few life experiences mm-hmm. and influences. I mean, like when he talks about how when Sid talks about how he accidentally killed his mother, or at least it's his his aunt, but who he thinks is his mother. Um, he's talking about how he wasn't strong enough to stop it. It's like your heart cracks in half. Like mm-hmm. when you listen to this kid talk and you get to know him. Um, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, you start to wonder, does this, you know, God, I don't even know how to approach this tactfully, but like, is, would Joe be justified in, 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 is it for the know? greater good? Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like how many millions of lives could be saved if you kill this kid? Is there any any justification for doing that you know what i'm saying yeah. it's under, like under what circumstance it is murdering a child <laughs> that's like a dark the, the turn. right the right move like, i really don't want to endorse well, I mean, killing the, I mean, a five-year-old on some podcast i think, so I think like, that's basically what the movie is kind of asking you though too that's yeah. like the film starts in a dark place and goes like darker and darker and darker to the final point to finally where that's the question it's asking it's like should he kill this kid what do you think audience um uh, it's for clarification's sake, he actually played the younger brother of Brent Robertson's character in Tomorrowland. Okay, uh, yeah. But yes, I mean, he he both strikes a chord as like, you know, the, the stereotypical like creepy child mode. Like he hits a lot of those points. <laughs> From a horror movie, yeah. Yeah, it, like, it feels like very omen for in certain moments there. 
when he's staring down, uh, you know, the, what's his name? Jesse, I think the guy that comes in there, the gap man. Yeah, yeah. See, I just saw it. So I remember it's very fresh in my head. And, uh, and but at the same time, your heart also breaks for him when he, you know, when he's in tears and, and like kind of emotionally, you know, uh, bearing his soul to his, to his mom and stuff. And I think, uh, yeah, for such a young actor and considering how dicey children, uh, children actors can be a lot of times in film, this is a very, yeah. he does a lot with, Ultimately, not that much screen time. I mean, they're only in the, the second half of the movie, and he's you know he has a lot of key scenes and gets like really makes the most impact with um, with the, the material that he does have. I actually one of the, he was another one of the things that really stood out in my mind, having only seen this movie once six years ago. The performance, the child uh, performance that he gave in that, and um, yeah, it's it's interesting yeah. to see where that uh, where that goes. Really, the performances across the board are pretty solid here. Uh, I mean, we yeah. mentioned JGL is was really great, and and uh, I feel like I feel like he I don't know where he feels like he's faded off a lot a little bit the last few years. I don't know if that's because the walk was uh, was not a particularly big yeah. hit or. Uh, he's had a string of, of mediocre movies. He's in Snowden and The Walk, and like, yeah. I mean, he does great in all those movies. It's just they're, you know, kind of they're they're at least received as duds. You know, whether or not they're good, it's like he's kind of had a losing streak in terms of roles. Um, yes. I still think he's he's borderline a household name after everything he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, he directed Don John. He does hit record, and he has all these other little endeavors that kind of keep him relevant and and working. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of performances, the, the performances are fantastic just across the board. But what's a, to me is a more landmark accomplishment is the fact that every character is extremely well developed and dynamic and multifaceted and, and has complex motivations, uh, by the end. Mm-hmm. Like it's like you have old Joe, young Joe, Emily Blunt's character, Sarah, yeah. Sid, yeah, Sarah, sorry, Sid, um, uh, Abe, who's played by Jeff Daniels, um, and he kind of drops out of the story, but he, he it's does. just enough to keep it going. And you know, old Joe kills him in the end, which, I mean, Joe and Abe have the best dynamic ever. Like this, I think one of the probably the best scene in the movie is the scene where Abe convinces Joe to give up Seth. It's like a, you know, four or five minute scene in his office. It's just, it's so well done. It's, it's, it is a perfect scene. And so, so again, it's just like by the end, you feel like you've spent a lifetime with these characters. You've only been there for an hour and a half, an hour, 45 minutes. I just think every scene and every line of dialogue has a purpose. And like, and not only does it have a purpose, but pretty much all of it lands. I mean, I cannot tell you how hard that is to do as a filmmaker, um, especially as a writer director who's not, you know, having checks and balances creatively. Like it, it's up to Ryan Johnson to craft this whole thing. And if it stands on its own two sturdy legs, it, a lot of pretty much all of it's due to Ryan Johnson. And if it is filled with holes and it starts to crumble, it's pretty much all Ryan Johnson. Yeah. Um, which is again, probably why I think the last Jedi wasn't so good in places is because he was given so much autonomy and he, I think he kind of struggled or, or delivered something that was uneven. So it's his strength and his weakness, but in this case, it's an absolute strength. And also this film was, I think kind of a, a big stepping stone in Emily Blunt's career as sort of a genre performer yes. as well, because her character here just feels so, so strong and like and, and empowered. I mean, and there's a love scene, but it's really she instigates it. Uh, you know, as yeah, opposed to like, yeah. 
you watch a lot of older films now and, the, and it's like borderline Me Too territory with the way like Blade Runner comes yeah. to mind, for example, as like, I'm pretty sure Harrison Ford just raped Sean Young. I don't know. I'm just saying. Um, yeah, you know, it can be <laughs> some of the 70s movies can be pretty rapey. Right. It's not not so fun to watch anymore. But the fact that she kind of basic she basically kind of takes over large segments of this movie in the second half. Uh, and it's is so empowered and, you know, it's very singular in her focus to protect her son and to, uh, you know, to ensure his future and to keep his secret and all that. I think it, it was uh, it's really it's a really great it's, performance for her, especially at this point. Yeah. I think she was still known as, you know, Devil Wears Prada and uh, those that kind of movie. This basically set the stage for her to become more of a sci fi action hero in her own right, leading yeah. kind of into Edge of Tomorrow a couple of years later. I think like her role is an ode to the complexity and immense responsibility of a mother. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. um, and the tremendous burden they feel raising kids in a not so savory world, you know, in a very complex world. Like her entire story arc revolves around her kid and her kid's role in the greater looper narrative. And like, Maybe an ode isn't the right word, but kind of like an analysis or or a real hard look because she's a total badass. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's she's, but she also has vulnerability, but not in like a manic kind of cutesy like I'm I'm you know a romantic affection of of the lead of Joseph Gordon Levitt's character. I'm here to have sex with him in Act Two. You know, right. it's not like exactly. it, it's not- nothing like that. She's she's a real organic character with her own struggles and she's she's terrified in her own right but she's also very res- resolute in her own right and she has a tremendous poise as a mother but she also like after the sex scene she breaks down and admits that she abandoned her child for a life in the city mm-hmm. so she's a deeply flawed character yeah. but not in a way that's like i need joseph gordon levitt to fix me so you can have an act three moment where we end up together you know it's like it's so di- uh, divergent from like all the tropes of of action movies or or, or a romance story arcs between like a male lead and a, and a female lead. Um, but you buy and again, that's what I'm saying by the end. Yeah, you buy into it. It's like that is a defined character that is a real breathing person who's going to act organically in the story. It's not like we need her to do this at this point in the movie. It's like she – in her own mind, you can see why she acts the way she does. And she's a dynamic character. And that's why the end is just an intersection of a bunch of character dynamics. That's incredibly compelling to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, hundred percent agree. And it's and you buy into the connection between the two of them because you get the sense that she's very isolated in her, like literally, like physically isolated, since her yeah. son are basically on this farm, and that seems like they don't really leave very much because she's trying to protect him and keep him sort of safeguarded. Uh, but he, she's kind of isolated in a lot of ways emotionally, just as much as he is, you know. And they they find themselves I, kind of thrust I, into yeah, this yeah. situation where they're they have sort of common goals in a way. And I think, uh, it, you know, it just feels very organic in that respect. And um, in a way too, it also feels like her her role here, as far as what you're saying about the strength of vulnerability and sort of her prominence as a mother figure, kind of feels uh, like 
uh, like her role in a quiet place is sort of an evolution of that in a lot yes. of ways. Or a revisit. I haven't even seen a quiet yeah, place, but I know exactly movie, what you're talking enough. about. I know from a very little I've seen, I know exactly what you mean. And kind of like, yeah, she, she, as a star talking about the actress, it was a breakout performance for her. And, and Ryan Johnson even said this in the looper commentary. He said, you know, while most of the accolades go to Joseph Gordon Levitt for anchoring the movie and, you know, kind of mixing his own manners and, the Bruce, Bruce Willis and giving a, a, t- a real organic performance. Um, Emily Blunt also went through her own transition. Like, like she's a British, a posh British actress. That's mm-hmm. kind of like, that was her niche. And now she turns into this kind of dirty blonde Midwestern farmer girl. Like that, that's right. not easy to do in its own right. And to do the fact that she did it well and did it pitch perfect is a huge testament to her ability to anchor a movie and, and, you know, take on these meaty roles and really deliver. And, and, we, I think her career evolution, I mean, she has been fantastic since Looper. I mean, she's playing Mary Poppins. She was really like the star of Edge of Tomorrow in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. like uh, a quiet place. Uh, she's just fantastic. Yeah. I think she's she's a real gem. Yeah, she's pretty great. So I, I don't really know if I have that much more to talk about except the ending. <laughs> we need to get into yeah. the ending. So what are your thoughts on, on the ending? Because – uh, I, I I appreciate it and I, I like what they're doing as far as, like I said, drawing the parallels between Joe and Sid and uh, sort of he, he feels that he has the, the power to make the right decision for old Joe and uh, and that kind of thing. But I could see how some people would sort of see that as kind of an anticlimax because you would expect a movie like this for like, oh, Abe's forces are going to arrive and it's going to be some crazy shit's going to go down. But sure. instead, it's very simple. He just turns the gun on himself. It's, I mean, it, it, I think it, I don't even think it goes into a close up when he makes the decision. It's a wide shot or uh, at least a middle yeah, a mid shot. Yeah. So um, how do you feel about that decision that he made? Do you think he made the right call? And do you think the film frames that properly? Or does it kind of feel like a little bit of a letdown of a, of a conclusion? Given how this movie has been so grounded up till now, it's a very um, precise and realistic depiction of how sacrifice actually works. You know, not everyone has their big act three moment when they have to sacrifice their life for a greater cause. And, you know, there, there isn't this big five minute buildup to I'll hold them off for you. You right. know, it, it's, it's like, and, and that's fine. It works in its own right. It works in different genres and tones, but like, this is something where like Joe sees an opportunity to, to, um, what's the word interject or prevent a negative outcome you know he has a split second choice it's like do i let this play out and regret this or do i recognize the immense damage myself and my future self which i guess is still you know rooted in in his own personality and inklings how how much crap they've wrecked you know for everyone and he sees you know he has nothing really to live for you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. everything that he cares about is at that farm. You know, it's his older self. It's the life he could have. It's Emily Blunt. It's it's sorry. It's Sarah. It's Sid. Um, his career is gone. You know, Abe is dead. Everything's in disarray. And it's like this is his moment where it isn't a big quote hero moment. It's like a very, very deeply personal decision to take his own life so that others can live out theirs. It's a pretty ballsy um, move for a movie like this to be like, yeah. oh, you think it would be a huge, like, he chases after, like, Bruce Willis is chasing Emily Blunt and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's chasing Bruce Willis and he catches up and he's like, you stole my life, punches him. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, it's like, In like a, a lesser movie, yeah, that's like how it would play sequence. out. But instead, it's just, it's a total, like, it's a movie where the big heroic act is suicide. 
You know, it's that's really yeah, it's daring. <laughs> it's really daring for uh, Ryan Johnson to go that route. And I, uh, and I again, I wasn't saying that. I'm not saying it's an anticlimax, but I'm kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit here. That I, I could see yeah. how people who are more looking for more of a traditional uh, action thriller would be sort of like, oh, right. he shoots himself. Oh, okay. But I think thematically, it has a lot more weight that someone who is who is basically just a hitman decides you know what i've been saving all the silver but this is uh, this is the better decision to protect this this young boy to protect his mother who's the one that's presumably to uh to prevent him from becoming this kind of horrific figure in the Monster. future yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh I, I think saving i think it works lives. i i think the ending is so <sighs> somber is the mm. best word um it just – I don't know why that ending affects me so much. But like every time I finish watching that movie, I just want to like go give someone a big hug and like just like cry on their shoulder or just like sit in a dark room and think about life because it, it's, it hits on something so deep um, and, and kind of like uh, there's a really weird visual tie-in to an act one moment where – Joe says to the the prostitute Susie, he's like basically tr- doesn't want to have sex with her. He wants her to like run her hands through his hair a certain mm-hmm. way, like like his mother used to do. Like that that's the only time he's known like true affectionate human contact, you know. Right. And, and obviously that doesn't go well when you ask a prostitute to like play with your hair. It's kind of a little you know doesn't work doesn't play out as 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 with a novelty that you would expect. Right. But in the end. Like when when Joe has killed himself, you know, his older self has disappeared because of the whole grandfather paradox. Um, Emily Blunt like kneels down to him by the field and, and like affectionately rubs, you know, puts her hand through his hair in the same way that we know is significant, but she doesn't know. It's like a dramatic irony. Like we know something the characters don't. Well, yeah, and I it's don't this beautiful – oh, really? Yeah, it's yeah. this beautiful shot uh, with a sunset and a silhouette. And it's and the music is just so it's not even like heart wrenching. It's not dramatic. It's just so somber for the occasion. And it ends with like a fulfillment, a very paradoxical fulfillment and and a real finality that you wouldn't expect. But again, Ryan Johnson knew what he was doing. And it just it leaves you thinking and it leaves you having felt like you've gone on a real journey with these characters. And and it. And it it, it just leaves you with such a, such a complexity of emotions and feelings. It's a movie that sticks with you. And I think that's why it did so well with critics. I mean, I really think in the next decade or two, we're just going to continue to look back on this movie as like a classic. Like, the, like you know, if our kids go to film school, they're going to look at Looper as like that movie mm-hmm. that was a staple of, of a thriller or sci-fi genre of this decade. I, I really do. I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm not trying to be snobby. I just I think it's that damn good. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty good note to transition into. So I guess, <laughs> what is you know, kind of our final thoughts. So obviously, sure, like that, a rating. You or... sort of said like, I mean, it could be a rating. It could just be like, uh, you know, I guess the big question: Does this film hold up? And I think you just answered that. You kind of got to jump on it. <laughs> At uh, least my yeah. What about I, you? I, I think mean, it's. I think it's a really. I think it's a really strong sci-fi thriller. I don't. I don't love it as much as you because I. I do. There, there are certain things like some of the flaws that I did mention. I actually do kind of bring it down slightly for me but uh, i mean i think for the most part it's really it's a really um fresh and sort of strange and uh 
piece of sci-fi filmmaking, the fact that it does, that it is kind of fearless in going as dark as it does, I think is, uh, it's, you know, is a credit to Ryan Johnson's accomplishment here as both a writer and director. So, I mean, I definitely think it's worth recommending to people that haven't seen it. If they're listening to this, we just spoiled the whole movie for you. So, sorry, but um, <laughs> you didn't heed the spoiler warning up front, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I think I, I definitely hope that it's a film that will continue to grow in esteem. And I mean, you know, coming from me, I'm I'm a, a Johnson, a Ryan Johnson fan in general. So uh, I think if people, whether they liked or hated The Last Jedi and their whole feelings about him as a filmmaker, if they haven't seen this, I think they should, it's worth going back and watching his first three films and uh, kind of appreciating his, you know, what he can do when he's coming from his, uh, from his own, you know, creating his own vision and not having to, to deal with a very, very temperamental fan base of, uh, you know, <laughs> such an established property. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I mean I, it's, it's a great film. Yeah. I mean, for me, I would, I would feel dishonest not giving it a perfect score um, because while I mentioned some flaws with like production or, the, you know, you know, some, some minor, uh, gripes, I, I can't, I think every movie, even, even Lord of the Rings in its best moment has, has imperfections mm -hmm. and like, do those imperfections hamper the story or the believability? And, and in Looper for me, the answer is always no. Um, so yeah. I, I I don't I don't know if you do ratings, but I would give it a, f a full marks. I really I would probably I do fantastic. I would probably do a, a four out of five, which is okay. Like what, a B plus or something, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's... ish B plus A minus. Uh, it's really hard for me to go five, and it, like I want to give this a four point five, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's quite there for me. Um, yeah, I mean we've done we've done like eight episodes of the Screen Fever podcast. I don't think I've ever given a movie a five out of five. Um, even game night, which is like one of my favorite comedies ever. I gave it a four and a half out of five. Like I save this rating for movies that I really care about. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm not a guy who throws out perfect scores, but well, this is a perfect score. Well, that was, it was a good choice for you then, uh, to, as, for this to be the film that we talk about, I guess. Um, absolutely. Great. Well, that's all we have for now. You could subscribe to the Crooked Table podcast, um, on iTunes, you consider contributing to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash crooked table. You can also rate and review the Crooked Table podcast and uh, help others find the show. Um, Adam, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, uh, at Adam Beanard. So it's like my last name with missing two letters, just B-N-A-R-D. Um, that's like my handle on Instagram and, and uh, Twitter. I'm also at uh, at real screen fever on Twitter and screen fever on YouTube. That's our channel. If you want to sample some of the content and hear some of the discussions that I have with Jackson and, and also hear Robert on our channel. Cause you've done, um, two, I think, I think two, I think the Kevin videos, Smith two discussions, three, then, three. Oh yeah. Oh, the Boba, Boba Fett, Fett, Kevin Smith. And then, Boba Fett. Yeah. yeah and, and the state of the fandom. Um, and it's interesting. Like the, the Kevin Smith video is like the second most viewed, uh, video on our channel because I, I, as we were talking about earlier, niche content works. You know, everyone is a podcast about a Marvel movie, but like I've actually found if you Google Kevin Smith Moose Jaws, our video comes up on like the top results. Oh, awesome. So like, yeah, it was totally unintentional, but I just, I wanted to kind of service a, a fandom or a movie or a news piece that isn't 
you, you know, ubiquitously serviced. Right. And like in that, you find you have an audience. Um, people, people who are also fans of of that one small guy's side project. You know, it's like you have to take a ton of twists and turns down the labyrinth. But once you get there, it's like the people who are listening to that really want to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, like Looper, this can be a real substantive discussion for other people who who are kind of have like a cult fandom of that or of of you know Looper itself or Ryan Johnson's filmography. Yeah, absolutely. You can find me, Robert Yannis Jr., on Twitter at Crooked Table. Of course, find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at CrookedTable.com. Adam, thanks so much for joining me. This was a lot of fun, and uh, you know, we'll have to we'll have to cycle back when I once I cycle through more guests. We'll have to bring you on to talk about <laughs> another film. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me back. I appreciate um, um, these kinds of discussions. I, I really like our dynamic, and like I loved hearing your analysis. I'm excited to hear the other guests you bring in. Um, you know, given that each week you're kind of introducing a new voice, I think that's really cool and it'll really keep things fresh. Yeah, that's that's the goal. We'll see how it goes. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.